Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Canines Talking Sense. I am your host, Cameron Ford. We are broadcasting from Scent City in Las Vegas, home of Ford Canine. I want to thank everybody who's been giving us feedback from the last episodes with Mike Suttle and Mike Ritlin. Uh, those were really popular episodes. And before we get into this episode, which has been one of my favorites, um, we'll do a little catching up. So as many of you guys have seen, I've been doing quite a bit of traveling uh, late summer into now early fall, and it's been really great to get out there and work with a lot of the different uh, teams and organizations. I'm very grateful for so many people having me out to do the classes that I do, the canine cognition or the odor pays uh, classes. It's been really enjoyable. Got up to Reno, uh, worked with everybody from the Western States Canine Conference. Uh, my good friend Ron Cloward is the president out there, and it's always a, a good event. Of course, we missed the past year because of COVID, but this year we got to have it, and it was a lot of good fun uh, had by everybody. Uh, from there, uh, went out to uh, Indiana to the American Tactical Canine Conference, and wow, the the list of instructors at that uh, event was uh, unbelievable. Talk about a all star crew. You have individuals like. Armin Winkler, Steve Sprouse, Justin Rigney, uh, Franco Angelini, and I, that's just a few of them. So really honored to be out there. Look forward to this coming year in 2022 to get out there again and have even more tools with me to do some detection stuff. Uh, so keep your eyes out on social media for that one. Then from there, I went out to Switzerland and got to uh, go out. Uh, I was invited by uh, Michelle Brandenberger of her company, Edushin, which is uh, Education Canine in French, and um, got to work with a lot of great handlers and trainers out there in Switzerland. And I have to say, um, seeing a country um, 
that does not utilize any adversives in training. So basically, uh, the dogs have to work simply on a flat collar. There's no pinch, no choke chain, no e-collar, no nothing. And the type of dogs now uh, that you get to see, dogs that aren't um, exposed to compulsion uh, as we always see it, you see a totally different type of dog. And that's really amazing to, to watch and to see what they could do because they had no choice. You're either breaking the law if you utilize any of those uh, adversive tools or you figure out how to train a dog. And uh, working with the Swiss police, I got to see dogs that I would select myself, dogs with amazing drive, amazing ability. And I was uh, astounded by how well those dogs worked how well those dogs had control, how well they released the toy and things like that and released a bite when they did bite work, all with no conflict. Uh, and that's that's saying a lot. Um, so hats off to all of those people um, and all of you guys out there that uh, approach training that way. Uh, you really have to, as I always say, know your dog in order to be successful. And that was one of the seminars I did out there was the canine cognition. From there, I went to New York City and got to work with, uh, really observe more than anything else, but uh, NYPD's Canine Transit Bureau be out there for a graduation of uh, one of their uh, detector dog schools. And wow, (laughs) the environment that those dogs work in and what the handlers go through um, is quite amazing. And just law enforcement in general, what they have to go through out there is also quite uh, astounding and, and my hat's off to them as well. It was a lot of firsts in that class. They had their first dogs from their breeding program. Uh, they had their first Springer Spaniel uh, that they have in their program. Uh, and I, of course, as you guys all know, I've become much more of a fan of the Springer Spaniels uh, and their capabilities and, of course, why they're pretty much the number one choice in uh, detection dogs in other countries around the world. And which leads to this episode, we'll, we'll talk about that with uh, the guests I have on here. It was just being, it was awesome being exposed to all of that, watching their handler tryouts, watching the graduation, watching the training. So good times. Uh, from there, I was up in Massachusetts and uh, got to do another canine cognition seminar. So that was a good fun. Um, thank you to everybody that's had me out there. I've definitely enjoyed going out and doing those two main classes are the most popular, which is the canine cognition testing. And of course the, uh, odor pays class, you know, how we go about the process that we utilize at Ford canine, uh, to start dogs and to problem solve dogs. So that leads me to a big announcement. I've kind of kept it under wraps for the past week or so. And this is the week of, uh, October 20th or uh, this is Wednesday. So, uh, I've had my new Ford canine website up for, uh, a few days now. And, um, this will come out as the announcement to all of you guys that that new website is up and available. And, um, yeah, put a lot into this. Um, this website has everything that you guys have been asking for. Um, We have every event that's going on. So whether it be all of our classes at Ford Canine or whether it's me traveling and where I'm traveling to, it's all of our webinars and all of our future webinars, including live webinars. Everything will now be run through Zoom. 
It'll be linked to the website. Everything is smooth and easy to do as far as signing up for events, signing up to be notified when we're having events. Um, You can see all the classes that we offer here in Las Vegas online, the dates of when they're going to be happening, the cost, everything. It's, It's all streamlined now. In addition to that is our big announcement of our online courses taught by 14 different subject matter experts, individuals such as Simon Prinz, Dr. Michelle Mon, Dr. Nathan Hall, Dr. Lauren DeGrief, Dr. Paula uh, Tiedemann, um, Pete Stevens, Bill Gaskins, Natalie Dubrow, uh, Paul Bunker, um, the list goes on and on. Um, if you go to the website, we list many of those individuals on there. All of these individuals, including myself, we will have our classes listed on there. So not only will it be in the single webinar format for just particular subjects, but there'll be actual online courses that'll be a mixture of these different uh, online modules So for example, you could sign up for a course that has uh, Simon Prinz, Dr. Lauren DeGrief, and myself maybe, and uh, one of the other instructors on there, and that is one course. And you'll take that course watching the various uh, class materials and videos that we'll have, as well as PDF files for class material, as well as your exams on there as well. So a lot of information on that website. Of course, we have our online store. We have all the podcasts. Our new YouTube channel is also on there, the Ford K9 YouTube channel. So you can find us on YouTube. Uh, the site, web, FordK9.com website, has a direct link to the YouTube channel as well. And uh, the YouTube channel is where I've been kind of posting these video question and answers that all of you have reached out to me uh, and sent me questions and I've picked random ones and responded to those, we will continue with that. So I ask all of you that are listeners, if you have a question and you would like me to answer it, uh, send me that question via email. You can send it to info, I-N-F-O, at FordK9.com and I will respond uh, if it's a question I pick in a video format and it'll be uploaded to YouTube and of course, social media. There's a wide variety of topics already there right now. So go check out the website, sign up. We have different things you can sign up for. You can be alerted to webinars only. You can be alerted to when the online courses begin, which will be probably in December. Uh, You will also be notified only if you want other bits of information, the videos and so forth. We also have our membership aspect. So we have bronze, silver, and gold. I'll let you guys go to the website, learn about that. But I'll just give you, for example, silver members. You'll pay 35 bucks a month, but you'll get to cherry pick. You get to pick whatever two webinars you want uh, and watch those. You also get discount codes to various classes, whether it be online or in person. You get access to me uh, once a month for video Q&A. You'll get our monthly uh, newsletter. So that's just that silver package. There's the bronze and there's the gold. And then we also have, for agencies, we have our agency membership. And what that agency membership is, it allows you as an agency, let's say you're the supervisor, you could buy, let's say, 10 webinars, 
And you can then give each of your, let's say, handlers or staff members, use their email address and their email address will give them access to a webinar. So you can give, you can pick one webinar, buy it 10 times and have all your officers watch that one or random pick random ones and have the officers watch whatever webinar you choose for them to watch. So it gives you the functionality of being able to make one payment, get multiple webinars, and then assign them out as you want to whoever you want to watch those. And it'll be you know picked by the email. So we wanted to create that website with lots of flexibility for you as a listener and user and trainer of dogs. You can choose things, whether you're an agency or an individual. We thought of as much as we possibly could, and we took your guys' feedback. We learned our lessons from uh, growing that, uh, you know, some of the format things that we've had in the past work, some don't. So we wanted to change that and, and really improve upon that. So, uh, go check that out. Like I said, you guys will have a lot of information there. So speaking of information, one of the things that I talked about in one of the YouTube question and answers was, uh, simultaneous conditioning versus delayed conditioning. And in this industry, we've used simultaneous conditioning quite a bit. It's been the number one way of uh, typically training detection dogs. And now that we have a better understanding, and uh, you can even go find the webinar I did with Dr. Lucia Lazarowski, where we talk about delayed conditioning and utilizing that. So not only do we have that webinar, I also did this on a Q&A of how we start our dogs in detection. And I go into, into depth on how we utilize delayed conditioning, uh, the techniques I use in that to keep a dog from going over threshold because they're too excited for the reward item, Um, managing that, utilizing different types of reward and getting the most out of my dog in each session. But most important is odor is the most important factor and it's the factor that comes first before anything else. So the dog is in odor and while they're in odor, they get rewarded. And if you go watch the video on YouTube, it's question number six. It's, you know, how we start dogs in detection, as well as the webinar with Dr. Lucia Lazarowski. Uh, You can get much more information about that. But I want you guys to think about, you know, the topic of simultaneous conditioning versus delayed conditioning and go learn about it and educate yourself. I won't go into major details of the website and the videos and things like that cover that quite quite a bit. I don't need to do that here on this intro to the podcast, but I wanted to plant the seed for all of you guys that are really interested that you can go check that out, go learn about it. And before we get to the episode, of course, I got to give my thanks and shout outs. I first want to thank Logan House Kennels, Mike uh, Suttle for being my last guest in the last episode, episode 51. Uh, But not only that, I will be getting a female Labrador puppy from him uh, next month, and we will be showing the progress of us, how we raise it, how we train it, and you guys will all get to go on the journey of this new puppy. We haven't named her yet. Stay tuned to the social media. I'll be uh, showing everything about her, when we get her, how we train her, what we expose her to, the whole puppy process like I've been doing with the uh, other puppies I've had recently, but you guys will get even more to that. Um, so thank you, Mike, uh, for you know entrusting me with a, uh, another puppy from you. This will be my third puppy from Mike. And uh, again, I'll be sharing that information with you guys as we develop this nicely young puppy from Logan House. Uh, next thank you is to Get Sent. Get Sent is spelled G-E-T-X-E. 
ENT. They are the manufacturer of an amazing product that is solely designed to absorb odor. And the best way I can describe it is it looks like a small, like, um, rubber straw, for lack of a better term. Um, there'll be pictures on the website and in the show notes here what it looks like. But GetScent is a revolutionary tool used to absorb odor and then put it out for training. So you're, this will be basically residual stuck to an item that has basically um, is designed to not have any overshadowing scent to it. So it'll only give off what the target material is that you've put it with. And it allows you that luxury of putting something out. A lot of people use cotton balls, Q-tips, gauze pads, Wattman paper, things like that. So Get Scent is a upgrade from that scientifically designed by chemists to do exactly what we want, which is to put out odor. Um, A lot of various scientific communities, especially in the detection community, such as Dr. Lauren DeGrieve, uh, Todd Wilbur, Michelle Mon, all of these people utilize the get sent tubes um, in some form or fashion or another. So here at Ford Canine, all students who attend our classes will get get sent tubes as part of uh, the material we give you when you go through a class. So this way, you can get your hands on it for free and you'll get to use it, try it out for yourself and go from there and make your own decisions about how you like it. But you'll get to see it in action in the class, plus you'll have your own. And on that topic, uh, my last thank you and shout out before our next episode begins is to Todd Wilbur of Precision Explosives. Todd has been manufacturing some great new products, uh, the odor imprint pads, which are another way of getting real, actual substance odor for canine training. He has explosives. He has narcotics. He's working on other things as well, bed bugs. Um, uh, There's even more. I I won't get to too many of them, but... uh, there's a lot of options. You know, there's a lot of controversy in the world about synthetic versus real. Here's what I can say. His stuff is the real material, the pure form of the real material, whatever it, whatever it is, narcotic or explosive and the other items. And it's tested. It is independently tested. It's verified how much odor is coming off of it. So these are things that are important to know when we're training a dog. So Todd being a chemist takes his stuff out to be tested. So this way people know for sure what it is, what's coming off of it, how much is coming off of there. And he can even, you know, set up these materials to off gas at certain levels and so on and so forth. So go check out Precision Explosives website, reach out to Todd Wilbur. Again, these links will be in the show notes so you guys can go check them out. So now on to the episode, I won't go into much longer, just This is a great episode. We're going to talk about sporting breeds. My two guests have a extensive history in this. Um, One's from Canada, one's from the United States. And we get into some good in-depth conversation about why we pick breeds the way we do. What's the history of these breeds? What do they really do? Why do we look at it as a paint job versus genetics? A lot of great conversations. So with that said, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. We will start getting into that right now. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. 
On this episode, I get to sit down with two different guests. Uh, one I've actually kind of had before when I was talking to his wife, and then the other one is brand new to me, but this will be an intro thanks to uh, to Bart, so I'll just go ahead and pre-introduce you. Bart Rogers, welcome to the show, and Craig, I'll, I'll introduce you, but I'll have to let you say your last name, because <laughs> I'll butcher it, I'm sure. So, it's easy. It's ca- It's Koshik. Okay, perfect. So... I thank you guys for both coming on the show. For our listeners, uh, Bart, I'll let you kind of start off. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do and how uh, you got to where you're at today. And then, Craig, we'll do the same for you. Thanks, Cameron, for having us on. Um, so I'm Chief Canine Instructor at Auburn University's Canine Performance Sciences Program. Um, and basically, I've been there uh, around 12 years now. And I oversee um, the evaluation, um, the phenotype evaluations to select breeders, and I oversee from early development, um, our, our from three days old, all the way up to um, the foundational level training to the point that we um, hold dogs back for breeders uh, or the dogs that we put in the field. So basically, I oversee the training development of our dogs from our breeding program up to a year old. Gotcha. Okay. And, and Craig, give us a little information about you and what you do and a little bit of your background. Well, I am a curious Canadian. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm a hunter. I'm a photographer. I'm a writer. I'm an educator, a business person. But I'm mainly sort of uh, insanely focused and curious about dogs and in particular hunting dogs. And so over the last 20, 25 years, I've uh, spent all of my spare time and all my spare change uh, traveling to photograph and research and hunt over all of the various pointing dogs uh, that have been bred uh, mainly in Europe, but in the UK as well. So the kind of the backstory of how this podcast came around was uh, Bart and I have had conversations offline and, you know, the industry uh, in detection has had uh, various prominent breeds from more or less the sporting group, uh, herding group, of course, as well. But as the need has increased specifically, let's just I'll uh, paint it with a broad brush here, uh, the floppy ear dogs. The floppy ears, um, specifically here in the States, the number one dog for the go-to on detection is always labs, but that's not the case around the world. In different areas, you see a predominance of uh, spaniels, whether it be working cocker or springer spaniel. Um, pointers are on the rise now, both here in the States and, and other places. And then there's the kind of mixed bag of other things there, Vislas, Weimariners, um, I could go on, there's other ones too, and I'll let you guys kind of fill in the blanks there. But those conversations that I've had with Bart was one of the things we have to be careful for is depleting a breeding stock or a resource. But then also detection has a lot of different kind of facets to it. And in the hunting community, uh, you could say, well, hunting is just detection, but the hunting community is far better, obviously, about particular breeds for particular hunting skills. And we come at it going, well, it's a floppy ear dog. It has this, this motivation and drive to search and hunt and, and play and these kind of things. So it'll just automatically work good for me. And 
we also know, similar to the hunting world, is detection, types of detection aren't even close to the same. You know, some types of detection are far more, you know, free air sniffing and scanning and other things are much more tight, detailed, uh, and things like that. Then adding to this conversation is the, let's say, end user's needs. So uh, certain aspects really like a focused type response when the dog's indicating or alerting and telling you they found something. And obviously there's dogs that are natural to that. So let's say the pointer. The pointer is one that will just naturally give you a freeze up type uh, alert that they are communicating to you, hey, I found what you're looking for. So with that said, Kind of, Bart, I'll let you start off with how we got here, since you're kind of tapped in and you guys do a lot of breeding and you you understand kind of the dynamics that happens here in the States with TSA and and some of the aspects of um, why we tend to like, and I'll just kind of use this example, why we pick Labradors over Spaniels, where in Europe and some other case, like UK or whatever, they love Spaniels, let's say, Slightly more than, and, I, and I'm again, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit, uh, and I'll Craig, I'll let you kind of fill in those gaps too. But why there's these trends that are different between us and other places? I would say that's the the culture, you know, um, from the working dog community. Um, when labs started showing up, you know, the playing fields changing, and how the environment and the application of dogs, um, and the need there was, you know, it was very hard probably for labs to get in the game when, you know, the culture was, you know, pointy-eared dogs, you know, mouse, shepherds, you know, that's just what people expected. That's what they'd seen for X numbers of years. The people in charge of procuring dogs and setting up evals, the evals were based on selecting those dogs. And just the ease at the time, probably from procuring those dogs from Europe, um, you know, giving the culture of uh, the, the, the sport, use of the dogs and the culture of maintaining um the dogs traits its origins and you know from kmpv to ring sport and things like that and be able to take you know not in a bad way but say the washout dogs the dogs that weren't they weren't going to pursue continuing to title um were very easy and cheap for us to procure so for years we relied on that and then you know the playing fields kind of changed when you know the application of the dogs so Labs stepped in and, you know, that was very hard probably to get them in. But the, the biggest factor I see is, like I said, the culture of, okay, we have labs. We have, we shifted from shepherds from everything to utilizing labs for, you know, if it's not a shepherd, that's the most prominent one, but we fixate on one breeds. And then, like you said, the GSP, the Vishla, when, when, when these dogs show up and they're able to be used, it's just fixate on that one breed and try to make it fit all applications um, of detection. And like you just said, there's varying environments and types of single purpose detection that we need dogs for. And a lab's not, a lab's probably the most general versatile one, but it's not going to be a niche type dog for anything. And the hunting community has done that. You, you don't use say an English pointer primarily if you're, you're hunting woodcock. And these different specialized breeds are niche type dogs. Um, so instead of fixating and trying to make these these other detect these other hunting dogs fit all applications, maybe here today is what we're trying to do is understand maybe the history of the dog, 
what it's been used for, the environment, and understanding how we can utilize different flop-eared breeds for different applications. And understanding the breed will help in training and selection of those dogs. Yeah, absolutely. And Craig, you, you know, you come at it from a lot of the historical aspect and kind of diving deeper into these subcategories of breeds. Talk about, I guess I'll start with pointer since that's an up and coming detection breed. Talk about, you know, the history a little bit there, but then the different subsets of pointers. Not all pointers are exactly pointers. And same with the labs. If, you know, feel free to kind of go into the different breeds, uh, pointer lab, uh, spaniel, and kind of educate us a little bit of why they came around and what they kind of each one has got a skill set for. Yeah, well, first of all, I would just like to agree wholeheartedly with uh, what Bart said uh, when he mentioned the word culture. And I think that that's what we really need to keep in mind whenever we're talking about any breed, any strain within that breed, any subbreed, any subset of any breed. We have to understand that dogs are, number one, synthetic creatures. There is no such thing as a natural domesticated dog. The, the, the fact that they're domesticated means that we created them. And what created them was the culture, was, was groups of people, sometimes led by a rich person, sometimes led by a crazy person, sometimes led by a rich, crazy person. But they were all, <laughs> they were all created by groups of people who shared a culture or traditions or laws or regional geography or attitudes. I've always said that any dog breed is nothing but a physical manifestation of an idea several people shared at one particular place in one particular time. So with that in mind, we have to take a look at those cultures and we have to take a look and say, okay, why did that dog develop there? What were the factors? What was, what was, what was bubbling in that cultural cauldron at that moment that ended up producing this dog? Now I'll get to pointers, but you mentioned Labradors. Well, Labradors didn't, weren't developed in Labrador, okay? Labradors are misnamed in a way. They're named for the uh, province of Labrador, Newfoundland. Um, but they are a descendant of a dog called the St. John's Water Dog, St. John being yeah. uh, St. John's in, in Newfoundland. And so you got to think, what does a St. John's Water Dog do? Well, St. John's at that time was an outpost of the British Empire off the coast of Canada, and it was inhabited mainly by men, mainly by men who spent most of their lives on ships or in rowboats going to shore uh, from the ship or back and forth. And they needed dogs to dive into the water and do various things for them. So you have to think that, you know, you're talking detection. Well, this guy, this dog has to detect the buoy that he has to bring in, or he has to detect that fish that fell out of the, out of the water, or he's got to do a variety of tasks. But not only that, he has to live on board a ship for his entire life, crammed into this tiny little shipping container with a bunch of men. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of dog personality do you need or is required to survive in that thing? An overly friendly, easy, calm, easy-to-handle dog that will do your bidding. So if you try and understand the lab without understanding the roots of its culture, and then it goes to England and you can go on and on and on, you know, through the decades or through the centuries, but you will always, always find that the molding principle for any breed is the culture that they live in, is the rules, the regulations, the traditions, the expectations. And so the first conversation I had with Bart was fascinating because we both mentioned culture. And I realized that what you guys probably don't realize because you're in the middle of it Mm-hmm. is that there is a there is a detection culture 
there is a worldwide detection culture with regional differences, regional accents or dialects within that same culture or language. So, you know, you detect Shin people, of which I know zero, okay? <laughs> I am completely out of that world, but I, I can totally, you know, sort of see, see which wavelength they're on. And, and, and again, maybe you don't realize it, but you are in and you are part of the process of building and forming a culture. So if we get back to, you know, sporting breeds and why hunting breeds may be a useful thing and why the lab took a while to get in because you were using all these, you know, ring sport type breeds, the Malinois and the Shepherds and, the, you know, those breeds. And the minute I started thinking about it, the old expression, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. yep. So when you think about detecting something, who's looking for those things to be detecting, right? It's typically military or law enforcement. Well, what dogs were traditionally used by military and law enforcement were those dogs, guarding dogs and herding dogs. These were the dogs that all police forces used and, you know, uh, prison guards and all these sorts of things. So, of course, you're thinking, well, we need to stop the bad guy with the bomb. We need to detect this particular, you know, confiscatable item or, you know, contraband. Well, that's law enforcement. So, duh, we're going to go with law enforcement dogs. <laughs> and then when you get a dog from a breed outside of that, it just seems kind of, why would I, what, why would I use that? So if we fast forward to sporting dogs and I'll, I'll let you get in a question edgewise here in a second. Um, what we need to understand about sporting dogs, as opposed to herding dogs, as opposed to guarding dogs, enforcement dogs, is that among all of the different types of breeds, they have a, one of the lowest if not, well, it's among the lowest survival contributions. In other words, the, the contribution that a pointing dog or a flushing dog or a retrieving dog makes to the calorie in, calorie out, survival of day-to-day -day of my tribe, of me as a person, is minimal. All right? yes. we, we could live perfectly fine lives and eat just as much as we want to eat without a hunting dog. Of course they help me. Of course they help me put game on the table. My wife and I almost eat all the meat we eat is almost exclusively meat that we get from the wild, and our dogs help us do that. But if they were to disappear tomorrow, the human race isn't going to go away, and neither are, my wife and I aren't going to start. We'll just go to Safeway and buy a steak. Um, when you're talking guarding dogs, this is somebody's livelihood. This is somebody's life. So enforcement dogs, herding dogs, that dog better be there or the wolves are going to eat all your lambs, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these dog breeds have very high survival value for the people who care, who care for them. Once you go into the sporting dogs, and their name is sporting for a reason, it's because of sport. It's because you, these breeds were developed by men and women working very hard at a hobby <laughs> or at a pastime or at a passion. None of these people were doing anything with these dogs uh, that their survival depended upon. And so that is part of their genetic code in these dogs, is that they were generally or basically designed and created for sporting purposes, whether that be competition, whether that be enjoyment, whether that be adventure. They weren't designed or bred or, or created at all to help us to save our lives or to protect us from danger they were a completely different category yeah you know you brought up one of the things there that uh <laughs> happened quite a uh happens quite a bit when there's a breed change and i'll give the example so when i was first uh 
in police canine, uh, German Shepherd was for sure the dominant breed. And but early in my career, Malinois was starting to become more popular. But man, the resistance from the guys that were you know in the units before me uh, to that change of German Shepherd to Malinois. Even though, let's just, lack of a better term, call them cousins, uh, they acted very differently when it came to training. How you had to train them was very different. And that cultural change for those trainers, they just hated it a lot of times. They they didn't understand the difference. Um, like you said, that's a great saying. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if all you've worked is a German Shepherd, then everything should work like a German Shepherd. So when that evolution started happening, it it took some time because there was a significant adjustment period to the training of the Malinois over the German Shepherds. And that was because as human nature as it is, we were comfortable with the methods and uh, that were used with German Shepherds as opposed to with the mouths. And those mouths made it harder and it required us to be different and required to change. And we all know it's very difficult to change. So then throw onto that fire now, the gro- 9-11 happens, the growth of the detection dog uh, quite significantly. And now some of these areas don't want that pointy ear breed, no matter what it is, German Shepherd, Mal, et cetera. And they are now have to start looking at floppy ear breeds. Back to that same problem. Well, when all you've had is German Shepherds or herding dogs, and you have to go into working with one of the sporting breeds, it takes, again, a significant adjustment. And I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit further. Now it's 2000, let's say, seven, eight, nine in there. When the military decides to have the uh, SSD dog program, which is a specialized search dog yeah. program, so they go from being predominantly malish, you know, herding dogs. Well, now they wanted to have these dogs. They realized through what we call uh, you know lessons by blood, where they lost numerous people because the art form of detection at that time or earlier in that time was walking backwards, doing lots of presentations, and all of a sudden. <laughs> In a combat environment, that didn't work so well. We needed a dog that could range out way out in front of us, uh, search areas way out in front of us, but be directed almost like a robot. Well, the only thing that they knew how to, that could do something like that was the hunting dog community. And they could see those you know, field trial labs do all that stuff. Well, then now they brought in subject matter experts from the field trial world, which helped them, but then also added layers of confusion. So there was a huge culture change. And then, you know, as those wars drew down, they ditched the programs. So then you have this loss of knowledge now. There's, a, there's definitely a vacuum that exists on that skill set because they didn't keep it up anymore. And, but that transition in breeds um, was significant. It took a lot for everybody to kind of adjust gears, find who knew how to do this. We, we struggled as a culture, uh, I'll call it a military law enforcement culture, to adapt to these um, different breeds because they could not be trained the same way. And now I look for, you know, I look at where we're at now and all those points you just made, Craig, is, you know, because we've kind of 
started tapping the well dry in certain aspects or certain areas with breeds, we now start scavenging, looking for other ones that can do the same thing, and we're bound to repeat these same errors. But even worse is this same problem that keeps reoccurring, which is why I wanted to have this podcast so more people could hear it. They don't work the same. Even though they're cousins or they're fairly closely related in genetics, they were, just like you said, designed by people to do a function. But if you don't know the history or the reason why that design exists, you're bound to have problems if you're trying to put that square peg into a round hole. Yeah, and I, I would like to add to that that the direction controlled IED dog or the the SSD dog that Cameron's talking about, you know that that was actually developed. The the pilot was done by Auburn University, and it was exactly what you described: the hybridization of the hunting community to give the directionals and and the freedom to work ahead and not on leash. Um, that pretty much revolutionized the IED detection from what it was before, and you know. You, Cameron talking about, you know, progressing into, you know, that. And then now the, the threat is, you know, high, high traffic mass transit areas and utilizing dogs that, like you were describing, the reason we use Labradors and the patented vaporweight and primary Labrador retrievers doing that is just like you described its, its ancestor, the St. John's water dog, being able to stay on a ship crowded with people. And be okay with it. The reason that that dog's utilized for that type of mass transit work is because the dog gets the job done, uh, works well with a handler, and when there is an incident, the reactivity, the outcome of it is not a bite that may come from that herding breed that, like you said, has the high level of guarding, maybe aggression from its background. The, the different applications here, you know, in understanding these dogs, and this is just great that we have Craig here to to get that insight, but just let, let's continue on with this. I think this is going to get interesting. Yeah, so go, uh, Craig, so if you want, give us a little bit of, we'll start with the popular breed. Uh, let's go Lab Pointer Spaniel as far as, you, you, get, you kind of hit the lab already, but when it came into more of the, let's say, the hunting and now detection communities, because the lab itself is also, there's pointing labs versus the retrieving labs. Um, and then I think a lot of people don't know is the variations just within the pointer family and the spaniel family. Yeah, that's a really important point to make. You know, um, among pointing dogs, it's, it's, it's curious um, that Americans have, uh, you know, created some wonderful breeds. I mean, the Chesapeake Bay Retriever and the American Water Spaniel, the Boykin. Americans have never created their own pointing breed. We have, uh, when I say Americans, I mean North Americans. I'm a little north of you, but I'm still <laughs> in North America. So we have English setters. We have Irish setters. We have German short hair pointers. But we actually have different versions of them. I've seen German short hair pointers in the U.S. that are about as German as a plate of sheep. <laughs> they, they, yeah. exactly. they, they've been transformed, you know, 50 years, and they're wonderful dogs. Don't get me wrong. A friend of mine has them. They're unbelievable dogs. Um, they're still called German short hair pointers. Just like some people, I guess if you're in Texas, and I guess one of the few places, New Braunfels in, in Texas, are, you might still have a few German-speaking people there, German-Americans. But, you know, let's face it. I mean, my, my grandparents, came, uh, my ancestors came here from Iceland, but I'm not 
Icelandic anymore. I'm sort of, you know, Canadian, as it were. So th- within every breed, you're going to find different strains. You're going to find um, the uh, Americanization. I guess the best uh, example I can give of that is that the three of us, I can detect slightly different accents between the two of you, and you can detect mine. If the three of us walked into a pub in London, it would take simply one word out of each one of our mouths before they knew we weren't from England. Mm-hmm. Yet we're all speaking English. Correct. We're all speaking English. It's just that we're, we're speaking different versions or different accents. So when you say the pointer, capital P, um, some people call it an English pointer, but it's the pointer. Uh, well, I could tell you about 15 different sub you know groups of pointers and it depends where you are Are you in in the south on a a horseback field trial pointer or are you a show pointer or a pointer from italy or a pointer from france everybody's had their sort of take at it or their variation so that's another thing we can't just identify a breed we have to identify within that breed a particular uh strain or Probably the biggest division in most of the pointing breeds is the show field uh, one. Same thing in labs, same thing in spaniels. You will find dogs that for generations uh, haven't seen a bird, uh, haven't hunted. You know, like literally a hundred generations of those dogs have been bred for beauty contests or shows, which again, entertaining as they are and lots of people love them. But when it comes to hunting dogs, those instincts are easily lost. And, and that's sort of, I think, probably the most important thing to understand about the sporting dogs or about hunting dogs is that they are canines. And within them, we have identified every trait that every canine has. Every canine on this planet points, right? They, they pause. Listen, here's a good trick you can, you can do with your friends uh, because I, I can prove that people point, all right? All you have to do is watch somebody when a mosquito or a fly lands on their arm. Nobody <laughs> swats it immediately. Everybody pauses for, uh, you know, half a second, two seconds, three seconds. Um, that is, uh, any predator will pause before it pounces. It's just sort of a natural thing. So, uh, you know, early on, hunters realized this in dogs. If they could breed dogs that pointed or paused longer and longer and longer. All canines can run, all right? A wolf can run. A wolf can gallop. A wolf can gallop fairly fast. But it almost, because it's energetically easy. Would you gallop when I can just walk around, trot, and then at the very last minute, jump or, or, you know, sprint at that deer and bring it down with my buddies? You take a 10-week-old English setter from field trial lines or pointer and put it on the ground, that thing will run like its ass is on fire, and it has no clue why. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it, it, it just doesn't know, and, and it'll point, and it doesn't know why, and, and allow, you know, little puppies, they'll retrieve. They don't know why. They've just been genetically programmed. So... Wolves will pick something up and bring it back to the den. Wolves retrieve. Wolves point. Wolves swim. Coyotes do everything dogs do. But what we've done with the sporting dogs, pointing dogs, we've exaggerated mainly that pause, that point. I had one dog that you could sit down and literally have lunch while she was pointing the bird. Like, nothing would move her. You could pick her up and turn her around 180 degrees, and she would point with her butt. Like, she was in a catatonic state. (laughs) And, and they've done, they've done sort of studies, uh, you know, studying, you know, with these little, whatever, the electrodes on their brains or whatever, these dogs. And yeah, they do. They almost go into a catatonic, epileptic type state when they're pointing. So we've taken these baseline instinctual behaviors of canines and we selected a few of them running until you drop dead or pointing until, you know, forever. Uh, and we've exaggerated them. And within each one of those cultures and each one of those substrains, subspecies or, or, or substrains, I would call them, are differences in those things. There are certain lines of pointers 
that literally run to the horizon. And there are others that will never go more than 100 yards from you. Yeah. Uh, there are entire breeds that are like that as well. Very important. Like you, what, you, what you're saying there is because, you know, as a person who's been uh, selling and, and training pointers more frequently the past couple of years, <laughs> what you just said is a very good description of what I constantly deal with, which is I get these pointers, some that just want to run around and bounce on everything. And then there's the other ones, like you said, that are supernatural about pointing. And what I can tell you as a breed, not a breeder, but a vendor here in the States dealing with vendors and breeders in Europe is now there's the, the breeders in Europe, mostly in the more far east parts of Europe. So let's say Hungary and places like that, that are, are breeding almost just because we want detection dogs. So now I'm getting all kind like when the like just like you said when the pointer comes to me the pointer just represents the paint job that matches what a picture says that had the word pointer underneath it the you know, because i'll get some that scratch or, you know just naturally start scratching for something versus pointing but then you know two shipments later i'll get one that's just supernatural at pointing so we're literally in a period too where we're playing mad scientist just because everybody got so focused on a paint job. So they're just throwing whatever they can that'll stick a ball in its mouth and want to possess it, breed it like crazy. So that way we all keep buying them. Is that more or less accurate? I think too is we, we probably need to discuss, you know, while we got Craig here in the background is we're, we're saying pointers, but when you, when Cameron says well, it was pointers, you, you, Primarily talking about GSPs, correct? Correct. You have you haven't had any other than a, G, a GSP? Uh, no, I mean obviously I've got to, I've been lucky and, and done some Drothars, but yeah, yeah. Drata, yeah. So 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 go ahead. Maybe if we could we could go into why the German Shorthair and the Drothair um, versus why I, and I don't know someone may have seen this, but I have never seen an English pointer um, as a detection dog. And then, okay, why, yeah, so when, why, why would that be? Why, why is that? Okay, so here's my theory. I could, I could throw out a few thoughts. First of all, when you take a look at the pointing breeds, so let's call them pointers with a, with a small P, uh, the pointing breeds that come from continental Europe. We have pointing breeds from uh, England and Scotland and Ireland. Those are the setters and the pointer with the capital P, right? But if we look at the continent of Europe, we're talking, you know, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, uh, Germany, Hungary, Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Holland. There is a river called the Rhine River, and it runs more or less uh, north and south. And the Rhine River separates France from Germany, Germany. And then it flows down um, or it flows into the ocean from the mountains in the south. What I did when I wrote my first book on the pointing dogs is I had 38 or, or so different breeds. And I had to kind of figure out, well, why are there's almost like two uh, families. They're all the one family, but there's two factions within that family. And I realized that it was the Rhine River that separated them. So what I did is I, I separated my book into two main parts. And the first part is all of the breeds from the west of the Rhine River. So we're talking France, um, Spain, Portugal, and, and a little bit to the south, Italy, and then Holland. And then obviously England and Ireland on the other side as well. But then on the other side, the eastern side of the Rhine River, we have Germany, Slovakia, Czech Republic. We have uh, Hungary. 
the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then everything east, what you're talking about as well. If you're, if you're getting uh, things even from Poland now, I think that they're being into breeding and, and other areas there, right? And it's a cultural difference, all right? It's a, it, it really is a strictly cultural difference that you see um, that the Italians and the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese have so much more in common, and the Germans and the Poles and the Czechs have a lot more in common, and they approach breeding dogs, hunting with dogs, hunting in general. They approach in, in I can't say completely different ways, because they're looking for something to have for supper, and they go about it in similar ways. But the traditions and the cultures and the laws and the policies and even the politics are different. So to give you an idea, I don't know, uh, Bart, you, you hunt with your dogs, right? You go out and you, you chase grouse every so often or you hunt with dogs? I, have, I grew up um, with, with some background. I, I grew up with Britneys, American Britneys, and, uh, you know, getting to, getting to hunt. Um, and kind of what, you know, you given the history of this and then, you know, what the question I just asked is you know i have my own opinion but it seems like the countries you're describing always bred for more cooperative with the say the handler the hunter and and more versatility versus some of the yeah. other breeds yes no that that is the main that is the major difference so on the west like yeah. in france you have Britons, okay and for you growing yeah. up probably like me growing up here in canada Hunting with our dog meant you get in the truck, you get a gun, maybe you're with a buddy, maybe you're with Uncle So-and-so, you go out, uh, you try and find some birds, you shoot them, and you have them, bingo, that's all you're doing. Uh, and nobody was around uh, to tell you that your dog did wrong, or there was, a, there was, you know, it was you and your dog, and maybe a buddy and his dog. There wasn't 50 dogs, there wasn't an organized hunt, there wasn't all these sorts of rules and regulations to get your hunting license, filled out some paperwork, bingo, you're good to go. You bought a hunting license, mm -hmm. it was cheap. The minute you go east of the Rhine, all that changes. In the west of the Rhine, that's how it is in France and Italy. It's just basically guys going out and what the English call rough shooting or walked up shooting. You're out there having a ball. You've got a dog because you want a dog. You've got a dog because it's fun and uh, you train it. Maybe, maybe not. Basically, you let the birds train it. That's what I do. I don't actually even train my dogs. I just go out and hunt with them and shut up. And they basically do what they're supposed to do. The minute you go east of the Rhine, all of that changes. Because the role of the hunter in the culture east of the Rhine is different. A hunter west of the Rhine is just anybody. He's your dentist, he's your lawyer, he's the guy down the street with a shop, and he, on the weekend he goes out with his dog and shoots. In Germany, it's the same. These are tradespeople or military or whatever. They have jobs. But as a hunter, they have a different role to play. They are regulated much differently. Uh, France has a million and a half hunters. Germany, which is a similar or even larger population, has maybe 350,000 hunters. There are far fewer hunters. It takes you 10 months of evening studies to become a hunter in Germany and thousands of dollars. And you must have land to hunt on. You must have invitations. It's a really rigorous process. And then once you are a hunter, you are basically treated. I remember going to a small town in Germany and seeing a parade down the street. And here comes the, you know, just like a parade here on the 4th of July, right? There's the, you know, the cheerleaders and there's the local band and there's the mayor and, a, you know, in a convertible car and there's the firemen and the policemen. And then behind them were a bunch of guys in green suits with hats, the hunters. They were hunters. They have a, they're, they're foresters. In other words, they're not just a guy out there for fun having their dog and hunting something. They play a critical role in forest management. They are regulated. There are many types of hunting in Germany. It's not only, it's not optional. You must have a dog. Like in France, you can, you can go hunting whatever you want. You don't have to have a dog. If you do, great. Most of them do. But in Germany, you, you must have a dog, and that dog must 
come up to a certain standard. It must pass certain tests to be licensed to be a hunting dog and then to be bred as a hunting dog because they have a much more than just sort of a moral obligation to be, you know, good stewards of the land. They have a legal obligation. Same thing with their breed clubs. Their breed clubs are corporations or the equivalent of corporations. So a German shorthair pointer club in Germany is regulated completely differently than the Brac Francais club, a similar dog from France. The Brac Francais club is a bunch of hobbyists getting together because it's fun. And in Germany, it's fun, they're hobbyists, but they're regulated. So all of those Eastern countries, their, their culture is much more different. It's much more regulated. It's much stricter. It's much more focused, as you mentioned, Bart, on utility because that dog must be able to do something. All right? It has to do something. Uh, whereas in France and in Italy and in Spain, it does what it wants. There's no must there. There's only what you oblige the dog to do. And so the attitudes in those, I wrote an article on my blog called The Difference Between Drive and Desire. And yeah. now, again, I, I come at this from a completely, I'm like the world's worst trainer talking to some of the world's best trainers. So please forgive me when I screw this up. No, no, you're, you're, speaking said, our, you're speaking our same language when, when you say that. It's okay, so, always, so what I always thought, to, go ahead. When I saw, because I've had German dogs and now I have French dogs. And so I've seen the two extremes, right? I've had highly driven, highly motivated and super intelligent German dogs. And I have French dogs that are the best hunting dogs I ever had. If a bad guy ever came in my house, they'd show him where the jewels are while they sat on the couch, smoked a cigarette, and drank a glass of wine, all right? And so the, the attitudes of these two dogs in the field are identical. You'll see them running around, pointing, and hunting. In the home and everything else, they're different. And so the difference to me was drive versus desire. And I said, for my French dogs, it's all about desire. And I said, think about yourself on a nice hot day. And you're hot. You've been working out in the yard all day. And somebody offers you a cold beer, all right? You want that beer. You desire that beer. There's a strong urge to have that beer. But what about somebody who's dying of thirst? It's no longer a desire for drinking. It's a need. It's a drive. So my French dogs, why do they hunt? Because it's like a nice cold beer. It is the best buzz they can. Oh, my God. That's it's so much fun. It's like sex for them. Why do my German dogs hunt? Because if they didn't, they'd die, they think, <laughs> because they're driven to. They, they, they absolutely have to do it because they've been put on this earth on a mission from God in their brain. And so they run around, and, and visually, it looks the same. You see two dogs running around. But I can tell just by the way they're running and by their expression and by the way they do things. One doing it because, oh, my God, this is fun. The other one doing it because if I don't do this, the world will collapse. And so the training approaches are completely different with them with a french dog these dogs i say training them is like trying to push a rope it's like trying to play billiards with a rope there's no pushing there's only pulling with the german dogs uh you can push all you want and they'll just you know they'll salute and say give me more um and that goes for their sporting breeds so that now these are huge stereotyped generalities which never hold up under close scrutiny but but that's basically how you can think about it is that one set of dogs comes from a culture where they must the, the word must is there and the other one is more like want is there and and it's fun to or this is cool too so that's kind of the difference just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show one of the new sponsors here at canines talking sense 
It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, As with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have 
the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at tacticaldirectionalcanine.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, fordk9.com. No, that's, uh, I mean, great, great description. And despite my doorbell going off when you guys were <laughs> doing that at one point, I had a, speaking of Labradors, a handler with a Labrador that showed up when I wasn't expecting it. But uh, anyway, the information there, I mean, drive versus desire was a great description. And a hundred percent. I mean, obviously I, I have definitely seen that within that, like I said, that pointing breed. And uh, like Bart brought up with, you know, the those substrains, if you want to call it that, of of the pointer. Now, I'm super curious because this is a selfish reason. Those that have been watching me on social media over the past, let's say, six months or so, now know I work a lot with Spaniels. And I'm already learning very similar aspects exist within the Spaniel family where there's... Um, Ones that are you know, like it's almost like the pointer, where they just want to go run, 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 run. All that's all they want to go do, and then let's say so that's more like I, I would say Springer shows a lot of that, but the working cocker is more uh, not so much that way, but more I don't know the right word, but refined like searches, but a little more tight in its pattern. So there's that difference between flushing and pointing. So I guess use this as a jumping off point to talk about spaniels and then maybe highlight some difference between flushing and pointing. Well, they both come from the same sort of source, the, the same sort of root source. You know, in the 1300s, there's a guy named Gaston Fibusen who lived in France and he was the world's most famous hunter, wrote the very first book on hunting. And he describes the various, the way he describes breeds, you can look at him and go, okay, he, he's describing a prototypical spaniel, a prototypical uh, pointing dog. They weren't that quite yet, but that's what he was describing. And they are, they are dogs that are, as opposed to dogs, uh, other types of hunting dogs, there are dogs that are basically bred, find something and, and run after it and chase it to exhaustion so the hunter can come up either on a horse or on foot and then put it out of its misery. Uh, there are, or they would have these dogs like hounds, basically, to track a, de- track a deer, track the game that they were doing. Once that game was started, in other words, flushed, other dogs would run after it, and then you'd have even faster dogs waiting in ambush, and they would pull it down. Then they had these dogs called bird dogs. And a lot of people think bird dogs are named after the fact uh, that they hunted birds, uh, which is they do hunt birds, but they were actually, the French called them the dog of the bird. And the bird was the falcon or the hawk. And with falcons and hawks, basically you walk around with a hawk or a trained falcon on your, on your arm, or you have a waiting on flight, you cast it up, it's, it's hovering around you, flying above you. And it's waiting for your dog at first to uh, flush game for it. Because, 
you know, a bird or a rabbit seeing a, a falcon flying over his head 100 feet, it ain't going nowhere. It's just hunkering down. It's waiting for that bird to fly on. It wants to hide using its camouflage. So you need something to, to flush it and to push it out of the way and so that it gets running and the hawk can, can chase it. And that's basically the starting of spaniels. But they also hunted with nets. And what they realized with spaniels is that they were highly trainable. They were highly motivated. They, they just loved, like you say, with your cocker and springer, they loved running around and flushing things. But they also noticed that some of them, instead of once they smelled that bird or rabbit, instead of rushing right in, they would pause. Again, just like any canine. And they realized, hang on, if I could train for a longer pause, first of all, they had to train for it, eventually they selected for it, I could actually use a net, and I could throw a net over the dog and over the birds and capture them that way. So pointing dogs are descendants of spaniels. Spaniels are actually older than, um, than, than pointing dogs. And, um, but they all trace back to sort of similar, you know, sort of hunting roots, which are of these dogs and hounds, various, various other types of dogs. So... Fast forward to today, what you have is spaniels that are enormously popular, but only locally. The French created, oh, God, probably not all alive now. Some of them are extinct, but they created more than a dozen pointing breeds. They never really created their own flushing breed. They fell in love with pointing breeds and stuck with them. The British and the English, they created a few, again, the pointer and setters, but their real specialty is the spaniels. Um, smaller countryside. Uh, smaller areas to shoot. You don't need a dog. In fact, all my friends in England and in Scotland who have pointers and setters can only use them for in very certain areas that have enough room for them to roam. But in most places, you're hunting in fairly small lots and you need something that stays close. And because it's flushes, because it doesn't point, you, you, it has to be within gun range. There's no use of your dog flushing a bird 75 yards from you. You're never going to hit it. Whereas with a pointing dog, the advantage of a pointing dog is my dog can point a bird, you know, half a mile from where I'm standing and they won't go anywhere and it'll give me time to go up and flush the bird and shoot it. So there's a different sort of attitude with them now in England uh, and the UK. I think they're up to, they probably cockers and springers. They're, they're breeding them in the tens of thousands, yeah. but within them, there are showbred, there are field bred, there are field mm -hmm. trial bred, there are different types, but I'll tell you a fascinating story that I just found out two weeks ago. A friend of mine in Germany got a Cocker Spaniel, a working Cocker Spaniel, English Cocker Spaniel. Now, in England, if you're in a field trial with a Cocker Spaniel and that Spaniel makes the slightest even peep, you're out. The English hate dogs that are noisy. Their labs are like that. I know people that import them specifically because they're quiet. Because the English, again, culturally, it's just not appropriate for a dog to make noise, right? You just don't do it, especially pointing dogs or flushing dogs or, or retrievers. It's just, no. It, it, not only would you be out, but you would be so embarrassed you would never go back because your friends would look down their nose at you. Germany, they hunt whereby the three of us, we're going to stand 100 yards apart. We're all going to face west, and we know there's deer in this massive forest in front. We're going to send our dogs in there. They're going to range out however far they got to go, a mile. I don't care. They're going to go out, and they're going to force animals past us boar deer whatever and they're good and the way we can keep track of uh, gps callers they're going to bark their heads off and not only are they going to bark their heads off they're going to bark their heads off in a different way if he's after a boar he's going to bark one way if he's after a deer he's going to bark another way and so we can keep track of the dogs and we can hear them getting further and further away or closer and closer and therefore be on our alert for it so my friend in germany got a cocker and she said oh yeah i said well what do you use a cocker for she says hunting boars I go, well, what do you mean hunting boar? Oh, yeah. It's the biggest running. Again, it's the, so cockers in England go maybe 20 yards in front of you, yeah. maybe. 
This cocker, she says, oh, no, it'll go a kilometer or more. I don't know how far it goes. It goes way the hell out there. And it barks. And I said, what? She said, oh, yeah, we've been breeding them like that for 100 years in Germany. So they've taken a cocker and made it into the opposite of what the English would want from it. But it, it is a cocker. It's an English cocker spaniel that is reprogrammed. It's like they hacked this, this thing's brain or its genetic code and made it into something that the English would hate if they saw it. Sure, you know, and it's yeah. it, it's funny you mentioned that because again, as this kind of mad scientist aspect to meet this detection dog needs happens, we're seeing the same thing that a lot of people who do sport started seeing. So, in the popularity of fly ball or agility, you had them creating hybrids like border jacks or uh, yeah. other mixtures of that, you know, or the new one now in dock diving is a whippet, but now they bred it with either a pit bull or a Dutch shepherd. They called a Dutch whip. And because they need the muscle mass to go even further, they want to, you know, if their uh, dog can jump 60 feet in a pool, they'd be happy, you know? So there's this, this need that, just like you said with the Germans and the Spaniels, what they did, uh, I'm already seeing on the detection side where they're doing a lot of crossbreeding with labs and pointers. Um, I've also seen, uh, what do they call it, a springador. So like a Springer and a Labrador yep. mixed together. That's another popular one I've seen. And, and Sprocker. Sprocker, absolutely, Sprocker. yep, for right. sure. So yeah. – um, you know, not only do we have, just like you guys were bringing up, the purest aspects, and within those purity aspects, those qualities that we're bred for, which do have good uses in detection, well, we then go off and go, well, yeah, it does two of the three things I like. Let's do breed it with this one, see if I can get three of the, th- three, of the three, or whatever it is. And earlier, like we talked about, the one of the things I, I see frequently, uh, and I'm going to call you know, the Americans out on this, we love, <laughs> love being generalists. If my dog can do drugs, bombs, uh, cadaver, and maybe go find electron, I don't, I just want to do everything, you know, or the administration, we need bang for our buck. So can this dog also find this, 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 and this? And then that that need comes up or people are bringing up, you know, or, you know, let's say the enthusiast uh, who does all these different things. Um, well, they have to try to find dogs that can do that. And then they struggle with any one of those other things, just like the police we struggle with. You know, I may have what we call a dual purpose dog, but the detection is not as good as the patrol work or vice versa. So we go into all of these different like little wormholes and versus looking at things more like our counterparts around the world, which focus much more on specialty. And exactly in the examples you've given so far, uh, Mm -hmm. even though they're related in hunting, but even in detection. So why is it, if as much as you know, Craig and and Bart too, because I know you deal with this as well, why is it, let's just say, UK and Europe lean more towards spaniels for detection but then the united states tsa says oh no you know and i'm and i'm I'm, bart and i had this conversation before but there there was a goal of saying the dog had to be x amount of inches tall in order for them to accept it even though there's caveats to that but um go ahead i i I don't i'm not sure that that standard exists anymore and i I will say for their version of uh, PSC passenger screening, there is a limitation on, on height. Um, I, and I've had dogs that I've, I've 
procured that ended up being vapor weight dogs, um, springers. Um, but there are some limitations when it comes to trailing someone in a crowd that it, how the odor comes off of someone moving that, that a shorter dog can get into a dead zone. That point that they're about to make a determination and trailing exactly who is carrying something. Um, they're almost like in like, imagine like cavitation, like a boat going through the water because of their height. When they get to an area, they can make a determination close enough. They're in, a, they're in a dead zone, but that's where you, you see, I think, or just, just like Cameron said, and, and is, is that, you know, we've seen that the, the English cocker is more refined than, than the Springer for what we want. Like we love the Springer, but the English cocker, man, if, if that dog had legs that were just a little bit longer, we wouldn't be thinking about anything else. So the cocker is capable. And they, they, they would purchase maybe for standard detection, um, but needs to be taller. So that's why I, I like the idea of the Sprocker. <laughs> and we don't see them yeah. here. We don't, we don't see them here. And outside of TSA, like I, I, there's the huge cargo screen. Cameron, you, you know about this that's going on that the dogs are utilized for before anything is put on a plane and shipped is screened in, in massive warehouse by dogs as a layer of defense. And they're talking about how, you know, this is one of the hardest things. And I'm sitting back watching going, they're just sniffing boxes. Like how, you know, how is this that hard? Well, it's the monotony of it. I said, well, it's the monotony of you're trying to use the pointer and the shepherd and some labs that see this as a small area going the same area and they want to range further. They want to expend that energy, that hunt, that value of the hunt that they have, the bred into them selected for and the cocker and the springer or more interrogation type dogs, small area interrogators to flush and they're built for it and you don't see them. So, if, you know, what we're talking about today is that understanding of what, where the dog came from and why we're not looking and being more specialized as the hunting community is and how we'd be better at it if we did. Amen. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the hunting community, <sighs> Never, I don't think that, you know, there was, well, there's a few points in history where you can sort of point to maybe this kind of happened. But in general, people didn't get together and go, right, here's what we do. Here's what yeah. we need of a dog. They, they just kind of, the dog developed because of the environment um, and not because of sort of a set to uh, a starting plan. Although the poodle pointer comes close and there's a couple that are, you know, sort of purpose bred and we think we're going to do this. But anyway, they, most of them develop because that's what people did. Uh, this is the type of hunting we did. This is the type of area. A friend of mine has a Brac de l'Ariège, okay? So he comes from southern France. Ariège is a very hot, dry area near the mountains. It's the mountains, the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France on the dry part. And he's got a breed that's been developed there over the last three, four hundred years. Very rare dogs. And he's here hunting in Manitoba. And we're out in the field, we're shooting sharp tails, and it's great. His dogs are unbelievable. They look like a kind of like a, an English pointer, but more houndy, you know. So imagine a big GSP that's uh, white and orange with, with floppy ears, of course. Mm-hmm. And he's running around, he's doing great. And um, because we hunt really, really big areas, I always give my guests a walkie-talkie. And I say, I'm going over here, you're going over there, we'll meet back up in an hour. Well, I'm out 20 minutes and some of these fields and it, you know, docs will sit on me. Well, he must've flushed the duck and shot. And I said, Hey, way to go. We've got something for supper. He says, no, no, you don't understand. It's in the water. I said, what? It's in the water, the pond. It was like a half acre pond that it fell into. And, uh, 
So I says, well, you know, he said, how are we going to get it out? I said, is your dog with you? And he said, I said, yeah. And I knew his dog retrieves because I've seen it retrieve birds on land. Anyway, I says to him, listen, I'll, I'll walk over there. I got my dog. She'll go in. Really? She'll go in the water? I said, yeah. So I sent my dog in the water and she went and fished the bird. And he was amazed. I said, Jean-Francois, have you, like, does your dog not swim? And he looked at me. He said, I have no idea. Dog's never seen water. He's never, <laughs> like, you know, like for, like, 50 generations of these dogs have never seen more than a, you know, a mountain stream in their, you know, in their existence. So, so it never even occurred to him that a dog could, could do this, but his dog was a specialized, dry, hot area dog. And again, so, so he didn't set out to say, I'm going to breed a dog that doesn't like water. He didn't have a clue if it liked it or not. It was circumstances in which that breed was developed that dictated Again, like the Labrador, the circumstances. You're surrounded by water in a small ship. Well, yeah, that's going to be a friendly dog that likes to swim, period. End of story. Nobody said, nobody sat down with a plan going, right, let's build a dog that likes water. They, the ones that didn't die, okay, put it that way. And so with this, you know, with the detection community, you're, you're, you, you know, you've got this source of dogs that have these varieties of talents that at some point in time, you know, if you, if you wanted to get a, you know, a predictable uh, offspring, uh, a predictable generation after generation of dogs that can do X, Y, and Z that you require a breeding program similar to turkey dogs in the U.S. There are guys that hunt turkeys and they need a dog that goes out there and flushes the turkeys and then comes back and sits beside the hunter who's in camouflage. They usually put him in a bag. The dog will run out there, find a turkey flock, he flushes it, busts up the flock, rushes back to the hunter, sits at his side, camouflage, while the hunter calls those turkeys back to shoot one because they want to get back together after they've been dispersed. So what do these turkey dog guys do? Well, they take feists, they take uh, setters, they take springers, they take kind of whatever, and each one kind of has their own recipe. And now there are lines, generation-long lines of turkey dogs developed in the, in the U.S. You're referring to the boy Spaniel, correct? No. No, no, no. Oh. They're, these oh, are... No. No, the Boykin Spaniel is a breed. It's officially recognized. It has a breed standard. No, I'm talking turkey dogs. They have no standard. Oh, wow. There's the, wow. It's not an actual breed. There's just oh. some good old boys that have been doing this for the last few <laughs> years. Uh, and there are websites, just Google turkey dogs. And there are yeah. websites, and that's what they do. And some of them share their recipes. Some of them have secret recipes. Some of them, they, they just, they're hybrid dogs that have been, that have been developed or are being developed for one thing. And that is to bust up turkey flocks and then come back and sit beside me, period. And, and what they've done is they found like the ranging and the scenting capabilities of a setter to be good, but then the capabilities of this dog to be called. I don't know what they do, but they have their recipe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the big thing is to take from this is, you know, understand the history, but the detection dog community and the playing field changes so rapidly. I, know, I mean, Cameron, you may agree with me, mm -hmm. or, um, but we, it would benefit us to understand these other breeds like I said, from history and think about the culture that drove them, the environment that they had to work in. So as our playing field changes, as the venue that we need to apply these dogs in, we can look and go, this dog's built for this, you know? Yeah. And then understanding that dog will help us in not only how to train it, but also how to procure it, how to understand, to evaluate it, so that we ensure that the one that we buy from this breed that will transfer into our application how, how, how we need to understand how babes so we can we can procure it in a way that it's not a risk because you, you never want to buy a dog you're going to lose money on so um 
And then at the same time, having the bigger picture of if we have this domestic domestic shortage, how we maximize numbers of dogs without just exhausting one breed and try to use it for everything. No, a hundred percent. I mean, uh, the example that we're kind of talking about, you, you wouldn't see a field trial uh, handler using a pointer to go retrieve a duck. You know, <laughs> so no. why would I want necessarily a dog who, uh, let's just say, uh, I'm a bomb dog handler. Even the bomb dog, uh, heck, I'll take it to human remains, search and rescue kind of thing. A what I would classify as a search and recovery dog, uh, a dog that has to search wide acreage, large swaths of land to go look potentially for or and recover a body versus a dog who's doing a crime scene with lots of scattering. Two very different needs, very different search styles. Same with, a, let's say, a bomb dog versus a bed bug detection dog. You know, so just like you said, we can't, we don't, we need to take these lessons that we're learning and say, okay, yes, a lab can fit a lot of different things. But when there's not these labs around or whatever else, what kind of dogs do well in this kind of work? So maybe maybe a pointer, and I'm just throwing out an example, could be great at doing you know that search and recovery. And then a spaniel is great at that crime scene style detection. I can, I, I can add to that because uh, you know I, I work for Auburn University. We are known for breeding program Labrador retrievers and and we, we, we got confronted one time with a, a task of Marine Alabama Marine Enforcement Agency needed dogs to find people who were filleting red snapper, triggerfish, these highly regulated species in the Gulf. They were, were hiding the fillets. Instead of, you know, coming in with the two fish, they were used to taking out customers and find and, and being able to catch whatever. And now you know, the law says you can keep two. So they were filleting them, throwing carcasses overboard, and hiding them on the ship. Okay, yeah, we, we can do this, you know. And uh, I was tasked with it, and we're in a meeting. I said, well, if we do this, I don't want to use a lab. And, you know, kind of got looks like, well, you know, we're lab. I was like, well, we're going to be on vessels from large vessels to small vessels. We're going to be boarding at sea. I mean, you've been in three- and four-foot seas trying to get off a 20-foot boat into another 20-foot boat. It's not fun. And you imagine having a 60 to 80 pound lab trying to do that and also have him where you could put him in a John boat and he will interrogate every seam, everything in that boat. That That's not his game. That's not what he does naturally. So I got a 20 pound Springer from Germany and a uh, 15 pound English Cocker from the UK and they were, they were fit for the bill. I could put them on any boat, put them in any situation. And they were built for it. I could open compartments on a large yacht and throw them in there and just watch them run down tight, tight spaces and search. The lab, we wouldn't have that, that capability. Or with a shepherd, we wouldn't have that capability. Did a lab have the drive to learn the task? Yes. But could he function in that environment as efficiently as another breed? Yeah, no, I fully agree. I mean, uh, and again, yeah. as we educate ourselves and, and people like Craig, who are a ton, has tons of knowledge to offer, um, kind of, you know, we need more of this as far as, you know, kind of helping steer the ship of detection 
into the areas that we need to focus on. So again, looking at whatever that scent discipline is, we'll say, okay, which would be a good dog for this? Oh, that, yeah, let's do that. Okay, let's go find the vendors, breeders, et cetera, that uh, have these kind of dogs. Because then we will run into the problem that we're facing now a whole lot less because we're kind of spreading the wealth. We are doing, we're being better stewards of our resource when it comes to detection dogs versus trying to, again, do this generalist mentality of let's just do this because it's also comfortable. You know, I know what labs are, labs I've seen in police cars, so labs are going to be the thing. And of course, by no means are we ever picking on labs. I mean, we're just kind of showing the example of um, this is what's been used the most common, but we're now facing problems uh, with procurement. Now, I'll steer the conversation real quick before wrapping it up into basically we need to also start producing the dogs here, you know, in North America, because I, I can tell you for sure, there's really good genetics here. There's, they're, they're they're here. Yeah. No doubt about it. And we need to, but we also need to kind of know where to look, but me and you've talked about this and I'm sure Craig will agree Mm -hmm we lack that process of raising those dogs from that young dog to, or that puppy to that adult dog. That's our biggest weakness. And once we get better at that, those breeders who have great genetics, who just don't have the time to you know raise that dog. Well, there's plenty of people. I mean, this is going to be an industry before too long where there's those people who make a living at raising dogs, just like you guys are doing at Auburn, the same process, except it's more commercialized. And then we have these resources here versus, you know, as we're all starting to see, getting dogs from Europe is becoming quite the chore and super, super expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's two two factors of that is, you know, they, they, they need the knowledge how to take these dogs that, that would be great detection dogs and then develop them from, like you said, an early age for that task. But they need the incentive to do that. The problem is, you know, what we're used to, and it's the culture of it is, you know, the, the five to $7,000 or even cheaper than that in Eastern Europe to, to procure a dog. That it, it's gone. You're, you're, the quality's going down and down. You're, you're still paying the same price. But why would a person with hunting dog, high quality genetics, whether it be Springers, Cockers, uh, German Shorthair Pointers, um, Labradors, um, even Upland Labradors that you know more for bird dog work um, that are high quality for this? Why would they? Why would they participate in this when they're making more money in the gun dog industry? I mean, that's that's why I've worked with them. I've consulted for it. That's what we come back to is that mentality of keep a dog for a year. I'll give you six thousand dollars for it. Why would they keep a dog for a year, a risk that it washes out and only make X amount of money? So, yes, the training needs to be there and the incentive has to be there money wise for them to participate. Yeah, for sure. And that's where that, like I said, you know, it becoming its own segment of the, of a business is individuals Mm -hmm. who are raising three or four, you know, the breeder did its Mm -hmm. part. This individual or business had, does their part of the raising and rearing and preparing. And then the vendor has their part because a lot of the people that I would say that are in that raising rearing aspect, 
have no desire mm-hmm. to be a vendor. You know, a lot of them don't. They're happy yep. to sell it to a vendor, let the vendor deal with the headache of, you know, potentially, you know, moving the dog on or dealing with replacements, so on and so forth. And then, you know, as a, you know, there's a big transition, as we all know right now in law enforcement, and there's a lot of people getting out of that mm-hmm. career field that actually have good experience working dogs, understanding dogs. And now they can get into the aspect of being those razors uh, because they already knew what it was like to be an end user. They kind of knew what they needed. And now, you know, this gives them a chance to kind of get in on the ground floor of the next wave or change that will be in the dog business, um, you know, in in this need that we have. So, you know, it's, it's really cool to see, you know, we're, like, like Craig said earlier, we're, we are in that change. We are in this period of time where there's a cultural shift um, and the needs of detection have changed quite a bit along with the science aspect of it and the education that you guys are doing at Auburn and other places that are helping us get a whole lot better. But we also, thanks to people like Craig, have to understand why these dogs do what they do, you know, and, and it's more than yeah. just a paint job. It, it, it totally is. And I just want to sort of amplify and build upon something that Bart mentioned, you know, and, and you guys are talking about procurement, especially in Europe. Um, so it is a question of money. It's a question of motivation, it's a, but it's also a question of understanding. And one of the things is this whole idea of being lost in translation. I don't mean translating from one language to another. I mean, um, my wife and I, we speak French at home. So when we go to France, it's, it's, it's second nature to us. We speak their language. So there is no, there's no word for word translation problem. We both, we all speak the same language, but we don't necessarily speak the same language in terms of the dogs. And so it's the understanding. Once you're looking at the hunting dogs as potential source of, of genetic material or dogs for bomb detection, you, you know, I think that there needs to be a lot of effort expl- uh, spent on not just money, but effort explaining to them what exactly you're looking at. And the example I always give is I have people here in North America always saying, Hey, Craig, set me up with a, with a breeder of XY breed, uh, XYZ breed in Germany. I, I want to get a wine runner. I want to get a GSP. I want to get a wire hair, a drat hair. Uh, send me to a breeder. I, I, I know some breeders, and so I send them some good ones. But I tell them, I always give them a lecture beforehand, and I tell them, number one, if you're an American bird hunter and you want to use these dogs to hunt birds, understand that the average German will kill more foxes in one year than he will kill pheasants his entire life. They don't do a lot of bird hunting. Their dogs are fantastic bird hunters, but they don't do a lot of bird hunting. So if you go to a German breeder and you say to him, give me your best dog, give me the dog that you think is best out of that litter, (laughs) I can almost guarantee you it won't be the best for you. It'll be the best for him because, geez, you see that thing chase boar, and you should see that thing do this, that, and the other thing that you will never want it to do. Oh, yeah, take that one because it killed nine of the neighbor's cats. Um, In his mind, that's the best dog in the world. In your mind, it's the worst one. So that, I think, is a hurdle to overcome whenever you're communicating with people in a different culture. And it doesn't mean in Europe. It could be anywhere. It could be in South America. It could be in Asia. I don't care where it is. When they're in a different culture, the paradigm is different. The, The context is different. So things like best or I want the dog that's the friendliest or not friendliest or the best or the most effective or highly driven or whatever. All those terms are understood in one way here, but they may be understood in a different way there. So I think that that, if you're looking at the hunting breeds, um, you know, I want a dog to range out. I could name 15 different breeds that'll all range out, but they're all different in terms of what they do when they range out. Uh, You said cadaver, you know, you finding a cadaver. Okay. So you send this thing out into a, thousand acre patch and there's a body out there somewhere what does it do when it gets there well pointer is going to you could train it to point or do whatever you guys do and train it to respond and whatever but there are certain breeds 
the Russian Laika, L-A-I-K-A, for example, we did an article on it a little while ago, uh, Norwegian elk hounds, and there's a whole bunch of different ones from northern Russia and Scandinavia. These dogs, their entire job is to run around the forest, find something, and once they do, they bark at it. Uh, that's all they do. They, so you hunt <laughs> moose by sending this dog off into the forest, and you sit on your ass until 20 minutes later, half an hour later, and all of a sudden, way in the distance, you hear whoop, 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 barking. Because the moose's natural instinct is to face down and sort of, you know, headbutt this dog. The dog ain't moving anywhere. And then you walk up and there's your dog barking at that moose and you shoot the moose. Or he's barking at a bird that he treed into a tree, a big uh, black grouse. And that's what you do. And so there's, I don't know, a dozen different breeds that do that in, in specialized ways. But that's all they do. And that's all they've done for 500 years. Well, that's, you just run out. You, you just described exactly what an HRD dog is. What Rod Ranger dog? I, just, I, I mean, there, there's going to be some people here writing that note down really well. Like, oh, wait, 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 wait! What was that breed you again? Deplete, where you, you just depleted that breed? Yeah, where where do we find that? One? Well, there's but there's yeah, but there's different types within that breed. There's like the West Siberian and the Karelian, and there's there's a bunch of different ones, but they're huge in Russia. Yeah. And then there's dogs like that in Finland, in Norway, in Sweden. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's what they do, uh, and that's what they've done. That's their hunting style. Um, there's another. Uh, so they use pointing dogs like corners and GSPs in Finland. They have a thing called reporting. We don't do it here, but they do it in Russia and Finland and in Sweden, I think, as well. Basically, the dog will go on point. But if it realizes that you're too far away and you are looking for it, it will actually leave that point, come back, and then lead you back to where it was pointing. Mm. Uh, and that's another one they want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually, well, the, I actually the, have. Go ahead. Yeah. And so the German dogs are trained to do that as well. They, they could do it two ways. One is they'll run out when they find the dead deer. They'll sit beside it and bark, just like a light, like I would. Or they have a little thing that on their collar it's a little uh, leather patch and if they find it they put that patch in their mouth and they run back to you and that patch in their mouth says i found it follow me and then you follow it back to where it is well, see, um, that's how that is, that's that's how uh diabetic alert dogs a lot of them they, they it's called a brinksel they have a thing that holds it's called a brinksel yeah yep. yeah. Yep. yeah 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 that's uh, uh toward their when they sit and they bark but but yeah like i say in eastern uh well in russia uh, parts of Scandinavia, they have dogs, like native breeds of dogs and several subspecies of these breeds or strains of these breeds that are designed to hunt in that way. They basically course out as far as they need to go, and when they find game, they bark at it. That's exactly what so many in the uh, search and rescue community are looking for. They're looking for those dogs that do find, bark, and stay there, or many find Go find my handler. Bring my handler back over here. Mm -hmm. So you know, find yeah. and re-retrieve, uh, or find, refine, I should say. And um, and the information you're providing there, I totally agree. I mean, we have to do better at finding the breeds that do exactly what we want them to do, versus this constant battle of picking the breeds that these other people picked. Well, I want a German Shepherd because, you know, police officers have a German Shepherd, so I have a German Shepherd. That means I'm official. I'm a, If I come out yeah. there with this white fluffy thing, they're going to look at me like I'm funny and they don't want to use me uh, versus going, you know what? Mm. This is the kind of dog you need. And, and the, people have to remember this too. You know, you get the dog you need, not the dog you want. 
So you're going to be mm-hmm. far more successful working with that dog you need versus that dog you want. There could be lots of hunters that love that a way a pointer looks, but if they're in you know retrieve work, that isn't going to work for them. So it's like again using the analogy of trying to make a pointer retrieve dog, you're going to have your battle. You're going to spend a lot of time training and then go, oh well, it's got to be this issue or it's got to be that issue or whatever the excuses we keep making when we keep trying to put that you know square peg into a round hole we keep trying to reinvent the wheel sometimes when it's already there and we just need to understand how to transfer oh yeah for sure and 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 again looking at you know being more specialized will make us more successful picking the breed that we need not the breed that we want and we're going to see you know progression within this field by leaps and bounds a whole lot faster versus us kind of keep doing, like you said, keep trying to reinvent the wheel and we're going nowhere. So, so really good stuff. I'm, you know, super glad that both you guys could be on here uh, to discuss this. And I think this is going to warrant probably another episode um, because I'm sure we're going to get a lot of feedback from this one. uh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that it'll all be good. <laughs> I, I, I think it'll be a lot better than we think uh, because yeah. we're, we're hitting on notes that everybody's going through. You know, there's yeah. a, I mean, I don't care whether you're in the sport community or professional community, we all have a lot of these similar problems. And, um, you know, and, and taking a look at maybe the instrument, the dog, um, and understanding it better, you know, from the things that, that like Bart and I do with the canine cognition and understanding how the mind works to then even taking that the other step that we're talking about now, understanding the breed that we're working with and what is it good for? You know, we can't just make the decision on the paint job anymore. We have to make the decision on historically what is this dog to do? What's the genetics behind it? You know, if we're getting a puppy like I'm doing more frequently now, What's the genetics of the parents? What are the parents doing? Because I want to be successful at finding the right dog for this detection. I mean, I've got, at the moment, four dogs in bed bug training right now, and they're all spaniels. And they're all going to be fantastic because that's exactly what they're kind of really good at in, in this kind of detection. And But then at the same time, I've got uh, a Visla that's in, det- it's in training for electronics detection. i got a lab in for electronics detection. And I'll say, you know, the lab does a really good job. But man, some of these other dogs I have uh, that are in this mix do even better, you know, because it's such a finite odor. So, you know, we have to, you know, re-examine what we're using and then also understand how to use it because, you know, that's the other aspect that we could get into that we'll maybe we'll save for the other podcast is, okay, now that we got the one that we know does this job, how do we best do it? So... Because there's there's plenty of the the lessons learned and the pitfalls. Uh, again, taking those lessons learned from the uh, hunting dog community that has made them successful at what they do. So, with that said, I what I'll do is because I have your guys' emails and I have your guys. Um, uh, I'm obviously not going to do phone numbers, but the contact information via email. So if people have questions, are you guys good with uh, having your guys' emails in the show notes there so they can get a hold of you, or would you rather just do a social media kind of thing? Uh, for me, it's fine. Email is fine. Uh, just send them to my website, which is uh, dogwilling.ca. Okay, perfect. And then Bart? That's yeah. easy to find. Yeah, e- email is fine with me. Perfect. Dogwilling.ca. I will definitely make sure we're, set, we're, we're sharing that one. 
Yeah, and also if you could, because we mentioned different breeds, I'm uh, editor-in-chief of a magazine called Hunting Dog Confidential. Uh, we also do a podcast on which we hope to have Bart at some point in time. But Hunting Dog Confidential magazine, in each issue, we look at uh, different types of dogs, like all hunting dogs, but as many different types as possible. So everything from spaniels to basset hounds to Leicas to, you know, which I mentioned to to uh, even mixed breed dogs. And, you know, there's one guy hunting with a pit bull and another guy hunting with a little Yorkie and things like that. So it's, it's, it, it, it spans the spectrum of different types of hunting dogs so they can get exposed to breeds that they probably never heard about before. That's fantastic. I mean, and I think that'd be a great podcast for people to go listen to uh, that want to learn more about these breeds to maybe find what's the best breed for their use, you know? So definitely yeah. thanks for sharing yeah, it that. Is. Hunting Dog, Confidential, Hunting Dog Confidential is all about the culture of, of dogs and where they come from and their history and that. So that's kind of right in my wheelhouse. And I'm the host of the podcast, but I'm also the chief editor of the magazine, which is uh, connected to uh, Project Upland and Northwoods Collective. So there's a whole bunch of, you know, really engaged uh you know, curious people out there in the hunting dog community and knowing that, you know, people doing such valuable work as you guys can kind of, you know, take the next step. I mean, what it sounds like is if it's as if you, you suddenly realize that there are dogs out there that certain communities have already 200 years worth of groundwork. <laughs> yeah. And then it just yeah. needs a bit of polish. You know what I mean? Like they're already there in the, in the almost diamond in the rough stage. You guys just need to tweak it for your purposes instead of going right back to the drawing board. Um, you know, and, and I can, I can say that the, you know, we didn't go into this. The reason Craig's here today is, you know, Cameron and I discussed doing this podcast and why it needed to be done. And um, as I'm driving one day, I'm listening to podcasts and come upon, you know, I just was looking for things to make sure that I didn't screw anything up because I have a background in bird dogs, but not an expert. And I come upon your podcast, Hunt Dog Confidential, and I got about three episodes deep. And I was like, hold on a minute. I need to talk to this guy. And then when I spoke with you, I was like, I need, I need to talk to Cameron. We, we need to do this, you know, together. Sure. Well, I'm happy to help. Yeah, we appreciate it. Well, Bart, Craig, again, I thank you guys so much for being on the show. And to all the listeners, I thank you guys for listening, tuning in to this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.